if I were to ask you this morning uh, to take out a piece of paper and a pencil and to write down the things that you thought were the characteristics of the Church of Jesus Christ, what would be the non-negotiables? What would be some of the things that you would, would say? Uh, we have different inclinations and we, we come from different angles. So some of us might say things that others perhaps wouldn't even think about. And then others would say things um, that is near and dear to them that, that you and I may believe are, are fundamental first line uh, marks of the Christian church that um, because of who we are might be important to us, but they may not be, biblically speaking, uh, of the highest order uh, as marks and characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't have to be around me very long uh, to realize that I love teaching the word of God to the people of God for the glory of God. You know that that's one of my mantras. And one of the things that we strive to do is uh, put our Bibles together with one another by reading the texts uh, carefully and to see how it all centers around uh, the focal point of Jesus Christ. And we've spent the last uh, few months, really, uh, working that out, and especially the last month where we've been in the gospel according to Luke and showing you how Luke himself, particularly in Luke chapter 24, recording the words of Jesus, uh, showed us that Jesus is the central focus of all of the scriptures. And so it behooves us it's good for our own souls to understand the Bible, if you please, through the Jesus lens, not through the Pastor Mark lens or not through your lens, but through the lens of Jesus Christ. That way we can discern the will of God and know what it is that he requires of us based on what it is that he has provided for us. Today is no exception. Uh, we spent the last three weeks, as I told you, in the gospel according to Luke, and today uh, we return uh, to our study of the greatest letter ever written, uh, the book of Romans, uh, and we will look at, in a review fashion, Romans chapter 12, because we have preached through Romans 12, but we've taken off a month, and so I just want to do a review of 12 to set us up for the home stretch for Romans 13, 14, 15, and 16, uh, which uh, all hangs together. So I didn't want to just leave 12 and go into 13 without a, fre a refresher course, uh, if you please, so that, oh yeah, that's what we were talking about when we were in, in chapter 12. So my aim is very simple this morning. It is to review Romans 12, but with a, with a twist. It's to review Romans 12 uh, by locating it in the greater early church context. And so we're going to turn to Acts chapter 3 and look at a very brief paragraph uh, as a way to establish a wider context of the early church. And then we're going to fit Romans into that so that we see how it all hangs together. Uh, this is our DNA. It is our history. And it also is going to show us what the characteristics of the early church were and what they ought to be for you and for me today. So two very simple points uh, in the Acts 3 text. We're going to look back. So we'll begin by looking back at our roots in Acts chapter 3, and then we'll, secondly, we'll move forward to Romans 12. Um, looking back, that enables us then to move forward, and it takes us right into our own day and age. Boots on the ground kind of living right here um, and, and right now. 
so uh, let's let's begin by turning back to Acts chapter three, if you would, with me. Uh, go to Acts chapter three. We'll be looking very simply at Acts three seventeen uh, to twenty one. I am a believer, uh, as as you know, that the more you know about your roots, the more you know about yourself. And this is especially true of, of we, who are, we who are Christians. This is why the book of Acts is so critical. It is really kind of the baseline of all of the New Testament. The Gospels lead into and shape the book of Acts, reminding us that the message that's in Acts is all about Christ. But then Acts uh, also fills in our history for us and shows us where the New Testament letters come in and how that is based on the life of Christ what, that we've learned in the Gospels. Without the book of Acts, we would be in a sorry way. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the book of Acts, not only to tell us the story, but also to show us how it is that we can fit in uh, each letter that we're working on, namely the book of Romans uh, at this point in time. It's why the book of Acts is so critical. It's critical to our self-understanding and especially so to our Christian identity. Without Acts, I'm not sure we know who we are as the body of Christ. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Uh, we know that in Acts chapter 1, we talked about that being the hinge. Uh, the ascension is recorded by Luke in Luke 24, and then again in the opening chapter of his second volume, which is the book of Acts. Uh, so the ascension is recorded in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2, a justly famous chapter with regard to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, and then the church gathered together in that very well-known passage about them gathering together around the apostles, teaching, dedicated to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, if you were, if you were looking for a passage to tell you what the unmistakable characteristics of the early church were, you could do no better than beginning in Acts chapter 2 and reading from verses 42 to the, to the end of, of Acts chapter 2. Beautiful passage. It's been a very meaningful passage to me uh, over the years of my ministry. Are we dedicated to the apostles' teaching? Are we gathering together, sharing things in common in fellowship? Are we breaking the bread when we gather together? And are we praying? Uh, I don't think you've got a church without at least those four characteristics, and we might argue about some other things, but I want to show you something that's uh, in addition to that here in Acts chapter 3. So we pick it up in Acts 3, uh, beginning in verse 17, where Peter is explaining the, the, the first uh, post-ascension miracle, uh, obviously outside of Pentecost, of the healing of the, the, the lame beggar. Uh, and so Peter is going to preach his, his second sermon or give us information here. Um, following his, his Pentecost sermon. And in verse 17 and 18, it sounds like this, Peter speaking to the people that are there. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, this today's sermon title, that his Christ would suffer and he thus fulfilled. So here's Peter, I love this, here's Peter putting his Bible together. Peter now is coming to a deeper and more profound understanding of what is going on. He's lived with Christ. He's failed miserably. He's been restored by Christ. He's now seen the outpouring of the spirit of the living God that, that Jesus has promised. Wait in Jerusalem until the outpouring of the power that's needed to evangelize the world comes. 
And then we'll go from there. So here's Peter putting his, putting his Bible together in a beautiful way, speaking to brothers who were saying, what should we do to be saved? And Peter says, look, I've known you've acted in ignorance, but the days of ignorance are gone. Because why? Because what God foretold through the mouth of all of the prophets, namely that Jesus would rise and that he would suffer, has now been fulfilled. And so now the page turns and there's, there's a, a new chapter uh, with regard to this. But notice that ignorance does not save you. Uh, ignorance is not bliss at the end of the day. Why do I say that? Because if you read verse 19 with me, Peter says, repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. You see that? Repentance. So ignorance is not bliss. Peter's saying, yes, up to this point in time, you've acted ignorantly. You have not understood. But now it's being explained to you. So now you're without excuse. And so what is it that's incumbent upon you? When your ignorance is taken away, Peter and Jesus the, the, the whole tenor of the New Testament is repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. And Peter says, repent, therefore, therefore you were once, now you've been enlightened, and so you must repent. Now, here's some of the characteristics that I want to show you. There are three of them. These are the results of repentance. It's an astounding, beautiful little passage that I put out to you rather quickly by way of setting up the background to do a, a, an even an even more quick um, review of Romans chapter 12. Notice the results of repentance. And brothers and sisters, and those of you who are perhaps visiting with us, be encouraged by this great passage to think, man, when I come before the Lord and I ask him to scrub me clean, to examine me, to see that there's any wicked way in me, and I call to repentance to turn from my ways that are opposing him and to turn toward him, I face a loving father who's coming at me to embrace me and to help me overcome sin and death. Look at the results of repentance. May it be, brothers and sisters, that you and I, as a body and as individuals, are quick to repent of our sins so that we might receive the following. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Here's the first one, that your sins may be blotted out. Your sins may be blotted out. You repent. This is why we begin with repentance and confession, each of our services, so that the Lord can blot out your sin, literally cover them, not to be seen, not to be used against you ever again. Repentance leads beautifully to your sins being blotted out. In fact, Scripture tells us there's no other way. There's no other way for your sins to be blotted out. So if you're trying hard for, by works, or you think you through self-improvement and you're going to do this and you're going to be better, that that's going to make God's face shine upon you. It's not what the Bible teaches us. Here's this beautiful remedy for the misery that you and I have in our sins. Repent, repent, therefore come to God, turn from your wicked ways and receive him. He'll come into your life and he will blot out your sins. Here's the second result. Just keep reading right along with me. Secondly, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Man, this is refreshing to me when I think about this. Remember now, the Spirit of God has been poured out at Pentecost. And so what Peter is sharing here in this sermon is that the times of refreshing from the Spirit of God, because we live in a new age. We live in the, the, the age of the, the, the Messiah. He has come. He reigns. So we live in a new age, in a different time, in a different way, apart from the way that the world offers to us. 
our repentance, watch this, our repentance leads to seasons of refreshment that they may come from the Lord, the Holy Spirit. This is the inaugurated new age in Jesus Christ that's marked by the presence of the Spirit of God. If you're, if you're worn down, if you're tired, if, you're, if you're, you can't seem to get past your, your own sin, cry out to the Lord in repentance that he sends the Holy Spirit to give seasons of refreshment to you individually, but to us as a church as well. Oh, may it be that we experience a new season of refreshment and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Here's the third result of repentance. It's not only that your sins will be blotted out, it's not only that times of refreshing would come from the Lord, but that it's also so that Christ might, might be sent according to the appointed time. That's verse 20, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thing? It really rocked me this week to rethink it again, to meditate upon it, that in my repentance, God prepares to send his son back just like he left in the first century. That's Acts 1.11. The angels, to those who are gazing at the Lord as he rose physically, bodily into heaven, why do you gaze upon him? He will return in the same way that he went, is what Acts 1.11 says. And then, it, and then the text goes on to tell us in Acts 3.21, describing a little bit more about Jesus, whom heaven must receive, he had to ascend to the right hand of the Father, part of the plan, part of the narrative, whom heaven must receive until when? Until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. God has a plan. He's putting it together. He's using you and me to carry out that plan. And when it is accomplished, when, as we saw in the book of Revelation, when the number of martyrs have come in, game over. Jesus is coming back. But it's incredible, brothers and sisters, drill in here with me. It's incredible to think that the return of Jesus is tied in some profound way to our repentance. Do you want your sins blotted out? That's the past. Do you want seasons of refreshment from the Lord, the Holy Spirit? That's the present. Do you desire for Jesus to return? That's the future. Then repent, therefore, and overcome your times of ignorance. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian summary of the banner of the early church. So what I put out in front of you is that one of the telltale characteristics of the local church in our day and age, as it was in the first century, is the prayers of repentance. We must be a repenting community. You got that? So that's the backdrop. Now, this begins to unfold even further through that first century. And now churches are formed and planted. Problems begin to arise. And then letters begin to get written. And the greatest one of which is Romans chapter 12. I'm only going to take a couple of minutes to highlight a couple of points. And we'll wind it down. But I want you to see how now the teaching of Paul sets against this unfolding narrative that is in the book of Acts. So we look back. Now, secondly and lastly, we will move forward with a very quick overview of Romans 12 so that we can get back up to speed and resume our teaching in Romans chapter 13, God willing, next week. Uh, if Romans 14 and 15 tell us anything, is that there was division in Rome. 
So even though it was a repenting community, even though it was a gathering community, a bread-breaking community, an apostles' teaching community, believe it or not, people were still divided. And like today, very sadly, so too in the first century, there was division along sociological lines, along ethnic lines, class lines. There was the rich and the poor. There was the slave and the free. There was the Jew and the Gentile. You just need to swap out terms in today's world into those categories, and you've got the exact same situation. Racism, black and white, uh, you still have rich and poor, and it's sadly, this has divided even the body of Christ, and that should not be. And this is part of the reason, I, I would argue, the profound reason why Paul is writing Romans. We're going to see that when we come to 14 and 15. But we know Paul and each New Testament writer, sociological differences are always, always rooted in theology. It always comes back to God, always comes back to the person of Jesus. Our divisions are not ultimately about the state of our heart. Ultimately, it's about the rupture that exists in our relationship with God. And so we need to understand Romans chapter 12 from that perspective. So Paul has written 11 chapters, first four, Romans 1 to 4, outlining in pretty graphic detail uh, the fallenness of human humankind. Not one of us is without sin. He then pivots magisterially and writes through 5 through 8 and then 9 to 11 about how God in his mercy has come to us in Christ to overcome that sinful condition into which we are born because of the sin of Adam. So Paul details in 5 to 8 our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, and then applies it in Romans 9, 10, 11 with regard to the specific, the specific issue with regard to the, the Jewish people and what is their place in the body of Christ now. That then pivots to the glorious 12th chapter of Romans, where we move from these life-soaring, life-giving uh, mercies uh, to an on-the-ground guide to transformed living. And I want to I want to close uh, with this last question. That'll take us a couple of minutes. The, the, the question is, what are these characteristics, according to Romans chapter 12, of a transformed life? And I put this before you as to whether or not it's an answer to what the characteristics are of a healthy 21st century church that claims to be following Jesus. Now, here are the characteristics. The first one is that we live in light of the mercies of God. Amen? Romans 12, 1 and 2, two of my favorite verses, and you know them by now as well. That in view of God's mercies, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. This is what you and I were meant to do, that we might be able to test and approve God's will as good and pleasing and perfect will. So the transformed life lives in light, lives by the mercies of God. We can do nothing apart from God's mercies in our lives. And I, I truly hope you're saying amen with me along those lines. So Paul says, therefore, having done all this beautiful soaring theology in Romans 1 to 11, he says, now, therefore, all that's mercy, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, now live. Let's make sure we get them in the right order. 
You don't live to obtain the mercies of God. No, you live from the mercies of God. God has acted first, and his mercies are in front of us, and we live from them, not for them. If we get it backwards, we lose the entirety of the gospel. So let's be sure we understand that God acted toward us and to this day continues to pour out mercy upon those who are following him. Secondly, uh, the characteristics of a transformed life is that we live by the mercies of God. And then secondly, we live in relational love. This has been a theme I've I've uh, repeated over and over as we've worked through uh, Romans 12. There are three, there's threefold relationships that Paul speaks about here. The first one in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is our relationship to God. And this is how we get right. You don't get that right, then it doesn't matter what the horizontal relationships are. If the vertical relationship is not squared up, if you are not have not done business with a, a father who is also our judge, who is in heaven, through his sent son, Jesus Christ, then your relationships horizontally might appear to be good, might appear to be healthy, but they're ultimately not, because our point of context is always and forever in our relationship to God, our loving Heavenly Father. The second relationship, as I've said, is with one another, relationships within the body of Christ. And the third is with our neighbor, those outside the body of Christ. And we performed a, an outline of each of those working carefully through Romans 12. So we saw that our relationship with God is marked by the mercies of God, that our lives are acceptable to God, that we might be able to test the will of God. A lot of God in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I just give you those phrases, mercies of God, acceptable to God, and the will of God may be known by those who have experienced his mercies. So we live in relational love to God under this second large point. In addition to living by the mercies of God, we live in relational love, first to God, and then secondly, with one another. And this is verses 3 to 13 of Romans chapter 12, which we looked at in, in great detail. Notice Paul says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12 that, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. So this is a universal message to the Roman house churches, but also by extension to you and to me today, that every one of us is not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment and each according to that standard of faith that God has put before us. And so we're humbled to think of the other as Paul says to everyone, and in verses 4 and 5, he talks about us being the body of Christ. One body, many members. The members don't all have the same function. Uh, I do this. Most of you don't want to do this, can't do this, and that's perfectly fine, but God has given you something to do, and it doesn't create a pecking order. Like, I'm better than you because I do that, or you, you're better than so-and-so because you do that and they don't. That's, that's an abomination to the work of God and the way of the world instead of the way of the Spirit in the congregation. So that we are many, verse 5, are one body in Christ and individually members, members one of another. I need you. You need me in order to properly function. That's why I gently urge those of you who are sitting there on your pew muscles, let's get off those pew muscles and get in the game. Let's seek the Lord. What is it, Lord, that you have for me this very day? How is it that I can serve 
my brothers and my sisters within the body of Christ. And of course, the banner that flies all over that we see in verses 9 and 10, let love be genuine, hate what is evil. It's one of the few things in the Bible that we're, we're allowed to hate. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Don't let it go. Hold fast. And in verse 10, I love it. Love one another with protection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And when I preach this, I ask the same question I'm going to ask you right now. What would the body of Christ look like if we took that seriously? If you and I took 1210 seriously to outdo one another in showing honor, you and I would be transformed. The church would be transformed. The world would be transformed. Let's do it. Let's do it, shall we? So we are, we live in relational love with God. We live in relational uh, relation, love with one another, horizontal. And the final piece of living in relational love is that we live in relational love with our neighbor, even if they are our enemies. And this is the rest of the chapter from verses 14 to 21. Notice what he says in 14. Bless those who persecute you. <laughs> we talked about this, didn't we, several weeks ago? Bless. It doesn't say tolerate those who persecute you. It doesn't say hate those who persecute you. It doesn't say seek vengeance to those who persecute you. It says bless. Bless those who persecute you. And like I said to you weeks ago, I'm going to say it to you again. I need the work. I need the mercies of God at work in my life. Because you know as well as I do, you're persecuted, your dander gets up, and you want to settle the score. And we don't have to turn very far in our Hollywood uh, stations to realize that there's a big, big money to be made with revenge movies, which I shared with you uh, a number of weeks ago. No, brothers and sisters, what God requires, he provides, and the model for us is Jesus Christ. He is the one who was persecuted for our sins, and yet he spoke not like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. My, my, my. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, help us to bless those who persecute us. Look at verse 18 with me. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, you've got to live peaceably with all this is in the body of Christ. This is outside of the body of Christ. If you've got family troubles, if you've got church troubles, if you've got work troubles, here's a text for you to be sober about. We are to make efforts to live at peace. Now, there's a caveat. It's not an escape hatch, but there's a caveat. Insofar as you are able, it depends upon you. You and I, as followers of Christ, should not be the cause of division. We should not be the cause of trouble. We should be reconcilers. We should be healers. We should be those who seek peace and restoration. We're to bless those who persecute us. We're to live peaceably with all. And then he caps it all off with that beautiful 20, 21st verse. Don't be overcome by evil. Two wrongs don't make a right. Don't be overcome evil. Don't overcome. I think you can overcome evil with evil because as I've said to you, it's never equal. Somebody does you harm. You, you don't want to just get even. You, you want to get plus one. And so the word of God tells us, and Jesus Christ modeled for us, that we're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. 
brothers and sisters, I plead the church. You heard me pray for our nation. You heard me pray for Minneapolis. The world needs the church now, I would argue, more than ever, certainly more than ever in my short lifetime. Let it be, dear God, let it be that your spirit flows in Pentecost ways so that evil might be overcome with good. Goodness is a fruit of the spirit. Let us pray for the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit upon us that we might live this sort of transformed life. First and foremost, in view of your mercies, oh God, thank you for your mercies. And then secondly, flowing from that, we live in relational love to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to one another in the body of Christ, and then to, even to our, our, our enemy-like neighbors around us. Let it be, oh God, that you transform us, that we may, might be agents of transformation in a lost and dying world. I ask you in closing of this brief review, where do we go from here? Romans 12, transformed life, looks back. It looks back to our earliest roots where we learn the importance of repentance. This is the foundation for all of this. You want to receive the mercies of God? Repent. You want to live in a loving relation with God? Repent. Loving relationship with one another? Examine your hearts? Repent. Loving relationships with those outside of the church in the world in which you and I live? Let us begin with ourselves and repent and get right with God. So we look back to our early roots to know who we are in Christ. And then we move forward. From there, we move forward in light of, always in light of the mercies of God. And it's there as we swim in the ocean of the mercies of God that we learn to love God, that we learn to love one another, and that we learn to love our neighbor. This week, let me ask you to do this with me in preparation of moving along in the book of Romans. Would you read again with me Romans chapter 12 this coming week? And let me, let me leave, leave you a mercy-filled assignment, if I can do that. Read Romans 12 with me, and then pick two things. Pick two. Pick two things in Romans chapter 12 that speak to your heart. Where is it that you're weak? Where is it that you've never even thought about some of these imperatives that are in this chapter? Pick two of them before the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to transform me in these two areas. Lord, I struggle to outdo one another in honor. Lord, would you make that my meditation this week? And would you, by your mercies, Wrap yourself around me and help me to see my brother with different eyes, with a transformed mind, so that I can show him or her honor and not worry about my rights, not worry about my, what's, what's my due, what's my privilege. Let it, let it be that we cast aside our own rights, that we might serve the body of Christ and serve our neighbor as we're commanded to do. Pick two, read Romans 12, pick two, 
spend time with those two, perhaps write them on a three by five card like I, like I do, write them on a three by five card, carry them with you, meditate upon it, chew on it, ask the Lord to make this part of who you are, that you might be transformed, that you might be changed and come become more like Jesus Christ, who has ascended, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this moment is interceding for you and for me. It's in his name that we pray these things. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your, 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 your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, O oh God. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, as those who are indebted to us. Lead us not, oh God, please. Lead us not into temptation, but would you deliver us from evil? For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory, both now and forevermore.